10 areas of agreement about the issue of abortion. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Trey Arthur, and my goal is to attempt the impossible. That being, I intend to present you with 10 areas of agreement on the issue of abortion. Whether we realize it or not, and whether the polarizing groups who intensify this issue are honest enough to acknowledge it or not, we have significant areas of agreement about the often oversimplified issue of abortion. I'd like to start with the two most common arguments. One will be a direct challenge to pro-life rhetoric. The other will be a direct challenge to pro-choice rhetoric. Both of these agreements are made elusive by the very oversimplifications of these groups. So let's look closely at these two areas from the perspective of the sloganeers. I do not want to examine what these groups say that is unnecessary because we have heard the words often quite loudly. Rather, I want to look at what these groups do. That is the key to understanding what a person truly thinks, including what we think about any facet of the abortion issue. Agreement 1. Abortion is not murder. Abortion is not murder. How can this be an area of agreement? Will actions speak louder than words? Yes, the pro-life movement quite loudly proclaims that abortion is murder. Allow me the first of what will be many biblical references. Faith without works is dead. What do the legislative works of those who would prohibit abortion suggest? Before you answer that, let me present a common example of how Americans use the justice system to deal with murder. A few years back, the mother of a Texas high school girl decided that her daughter was going to become a cheerleader at any cost. To achieve this goal, the woman concluded that one girl stood between her daughter and a spot on this coveted extracurricular team. Through careful plotting, the woman reasoned that her daughter's rival would lose the will to compete, or compete effectively, if the rival's mother met with a sudden horrible fate. So the woman hired a hitman to kill the mother, thereby setting into motion all the events that would place her daughter on the cheerleading team instead of this rival. When the woman was caught, the hitman testified against her, receiving a lesser sentence, and the woman was convicted and sentenced as the prime suspect in this conspiracy to commit murder. Does this example represent the values of the American criminal justice system adequately? I think so. If you have doubts, replace this suburban spectacle with organized crime. And grant me a little bit. Although he may have ordered and paid for hundreds of first-degree murders committed by underlings or hired men, this crime boss has not once taken blood upon his own hands. Would we trade a plea for any one of these cold-blooded killers for testimony against the crime boss? We all know the answer. It is yes, gladly. This is the break we've been looking for. The bottom line, our society, quite correctly, identifies the murderer as the person who plots and initiates the crime for his or her benefit. The hitman, in these cases, is guilty too. Nevertheless, we punish him as a tool, a tool used by a criminal mind that must be stopped before he or she tries another tool. 
Why do we treat murder, particularly murder conspiracies, in this manner? Well, I've given you the answer. If we stop the tool, the hitman, and not the handyman behind the crime, the person who plots the murder and benefits from its execution, then we aren't, in fact, stopping the crime at all. This is because the real murderer, the crime boss, so to speak, will simply seek out another tool. Each of these two actual examples may serve as a guide for understanding how everyone in our society agrees to define murder. You have the facts. Each one of these is pretty well documented. Now I'd like to apply these cases to a hypothetical instance in order to underscore what murder is and how our society agrees to deal with that criminal problem. A woman is facing a career-damaging or career-ending threat from another person who has the ability to force her to leave her job without so much as a public statement. The woman sees only one way out of her dilemma, as she perceives correctly or not that the authorities cannot possibly help her. So she arranges a meeting with a brutal killer who murders with a knife and disposes of his victim's remains with acid. The woman then pays this person several days in advance in unmarked, non-sequentially numbered $20 bills. And finally, she delivers the unwitting victim to his executioner and waits in the room until she's sure that her problem has been solved, has been taken care of. This is a certainty that includes her holding the victim down in a chair while the killer assures her that his job is complete. What is our conclusion? The conclusion is that this woman is guilty of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder and accessory to the same crime. She would be convicted, ceteris paribus, in every one of our United States, and every jury would sentence her to the limit. At the time that I wrote this in Kansas, she would have served a mandatory 40 years hard time before any eligibility for parole. In a state like neighboring Oklahoma, she would spend the rest of her life on death row, waiting for an execution that probably would never clear legal challenges. But in a state like Texas or Florida, she would be dead already by now. The logic here is quite simple. The woman in this example I presented sought and received an abortion, killing a child who, regardless its gestation, was fully human and deserving of equal rights to every other person in our society, born or unborn, and probably deserving of unequal or extra protection under the law due to its relative defenselessness. Did the abortionist commit murder? Well, the answer is only yes if the woman committed the same crime to a larger degree. He or she was the tool, but the woman was the crime boss. The abortion-performing doctor's sentence should be reduced as far as necessary in order to secure his testimony against the patient. After all, if we did stop him or her from performing the abortion, the woman would simply hire another hitman to help her solve her problem. There is no statute of limitations for the crime of murder, and there shouldn't be any such protective exception for a person who would commit cold-blooded, pre-planned, paid-in-advance crimes against a family relative. That means that as many as 30 or 40 million women must as soon as possible, be rounded up and imprisoned while our justice system sorts out the reliability of evidence against them. 
even if you make the mistake of granting an exception for women who received abortions during the so-called legal Roe v. Wade years, there is still a startling number of women aged 40 to 100 who need to spend the rest of their lives in prison awaiting execution if state legislatures and jurors see fit. This is true if abortion is murder. However, that is not our first area of agreement. Quite contrary, our first area of agreement is that abortion is not murder. I arrived at my understanding of this consensus, not from the counter-arguments of the pro-choice movement, but from the pro-life movement itself. The pro-life movement, whatever it may say, does not believe that abortion is murder because it is steadfastly opposed to treating abortion in a manner consistent with our society's treatment of murder. Furthermore, to argue that abortion is somehow a distinct and different type of murder reveals an even greater intellectual dishonesty. If a murder is committed and we do not treat it in any way comparable to a murder crime, then what sense does it make to continue misusing the term murder by branching it off into new styles that connect with other conspiracy to murder crimes in name only? That same logic could easily designate illegal campaign contributions as another kind of murder. In the 1988 presidential debate at Atlanta, Georgia, then-Vice President George Bush became the first candidate for national office to honestly confront the paradox of abortion as murder. During a debate about the issue, Bush said that women must be held legally accountable to some degree for the part they play in abortion as a criminal act. Note here that Bush did not suggest that women be put to death for plotting, financing, and executing a first-degree murder. It would have been the legally and logically correct point of view, but he stopped far short of that point. Nevertheless, pro-life groups, both individually and en masse, cried out against Bush's reply, running the risk of publicly vilifying their own candidate for the presidency. The woman is a victim, too! most proclaimed, like John Gotti, I suppose, or the Texas cheerleader moms. All of them are victims of the way society stresses misguided values. The bottom line, if the pregnant woman is a victim of abortion along with the unborn child, then abortion is not murder. Rather than try to weasel a new sub-definition of the word murder into our legal dictionaries, we would be well served to acknowledge agreement one in the abortion debate. Abortion is not murder. If you're a pro-life sloganeer who still wants to believe that abortion is murder, well, you're entitled to think as you wish. However, calling abortion murder does not communicate what you claim it does. In fact, it communicates what you have insisted it does not. To George Bush and countless others who have struggled to logically implement the pro-life movement's chief doctrine. Agreement 2 Abortion is a bad thing. Somewhere along the line, in an effort to defend a tenuous and embattled right, pro-choice groups have failed to recognize what is the most easily acknowledged of these agreements that I'm presenting. Abortion is a bad thing. I have already accused pro-life groups of failing miserably to mean what they say, and now I register the same accusation against pro-choice groups. When you listen to terms like right... It is easy to get lost in potential definitions. Are we talking about right versus wrong? 
right versus left, right versus responsibility, or even something altogether different. In each of these examples, right falls under the headings good, dominant, preferable, yet none of us would use those terms to describe abortion in personal terms. Does this mean that abortion cannot be a, quote, right, unquote? Is it possible for something to be both a right and at the same time undesirable and regrettable? Yes. Yes. And by Agreement 10, I hope to make that clear. Regardless, though, using the term right from a legal definition does not change the fact that abortion is a bad thing. Now, pro-choice groups may feel forced into a corner by supporting abortion in the midst of legal challenges from those who wish to ban the procedure. This defensive posture manifests itself in arguments like, abortion may be necessary and therefore it must be safe and legal. The fact that abortion must remain a choice, though, does not make abortion the correct choice in any circumstance. It also does not make abortion a good choice in spite of occasions when exercising this right may also be defensible as the right, meaning loosely correct, thing to do. Privately, most pro-choice groups are willing to acknowledge how regrettable abortion is. It is no great trick to get feedback on how nice it would be to live in a world without abortion. Pro-choice groups describe this world as one without unwanted pregnancy, abusive domestic situations, or life- and health-threatening obstetric circumstances. The fact that such a world will likely never exist does not make abortion any more acceptable. Even if it's proper for abortion to remain legal, even in a particular case where only a small number of abortion opponents would deny a particular woman the procedure due to the severity of her case or her situation, even if we lived in a world where only one more abortion would ever be chosen by a woman choosing to exercise her unencumbered right to decide— I'm betting that the woman in this singular example would agree with me. Abortion is a bad thing because she would prefer not to be faced with the necessity of making such a choice. Pro-choice groups need to understand that acknowledging this fact does not constitute a concession, only an honest assessment. Agreement 3. Human beings are a species in no danger of extinction. Having reviewed the two primary agreements that pro-life and pro-choice groups so dishonestly conceal, I'd like to look at areas where agreement is misunderstood due to confusion more than efforts at misinformation. The first of these acts as a response to the bumper sticker that reads, Save the Baby Humans. Agreement three is that humans are a species in no danger of extinction. Generally speaking, political conservatives have no problem understanding this concept. Present an environmental problem to a person on the political right, and pretty soon you'll hear that the fate of human beings is not directly tied to the fate of a particular owl species. Or you'll hear that the impact of the depleting ozone layer has been dramatically overstated. You can easily substitute that with global warming or any other environmental concern. Conservatives have no trouble grasping the concept that extinction is not a concern for the baby humans, regardless what your fears may be for baby seals, baby whales, or baby spotted owls. World human population is now at the largest point in history. We are facing more danger from overpopulation than from underpopulation. Even those who argue against the case for zero population growth would acknowledge this all-too-obvious fact. 
some pro-life groups in an effort to oppose international population control programs that include abortion, are quick to point out that the Earth still has plenty of food, water, air, shelter, resources for everyone living today and more. Those resources just aren't adequately distributed. The obvious problem, though, if we cannot adequately distribute so-called bountiful resources to 6 billion people, how can we distribute those same resources effectively to 10 billion people? If those numbers seem unrealistic to you, do a little math for me. Multiply the 1.5 million abortions a year that pro-life groups count against the American medical community with the 30-plus years that abortion has been legal, not including any illegal abortions performed at any time in our nation's history. I think you'll get a sense that our resources, bountiful or not, will need to be distributed with much greater effectiveness if we start treating the human race as an endangered species. It is not. To restate, human beings are not a species in any danger of extinction unless you count the way overpopulation increases the likelihood of self-annihilation. Agreement 4. You can stop abortion only by eliminating the demand, not the supply. Here are a couple of questions that must be asked, if not answered, before we can address Agreement 4. To the pro-choice side, does a pregnant woman who commits suicide perform a de facto abortion upon herself? To the pro-life side, after you pass a constitutional amendment to make abortion illegal, when are you going to get around to preventing it? Tough questions become even tougher when political ideology is staked against the answer. You see, pro-choice groups aren't terribly interested in answering their question. The woman dying in such psychological pain is pretty much the whole pro-choice focus. At least this side would be willing to grant that they aren't answering me. The question I've posed to the pro-life side surely creates more confusion. Most pro-life advocates seem convinced that passing the right law or amendment is in and of itself the solution to the abortion problem. Failure to acknowledge agreement for is the root of both misunderstandings. You can stop abortion only by eliminating the demand, not the supply. As I've argued already in agreement one, perhaps to the discomfort of the pro-choice side, the woman is ultimately responsible for her abortion. If it's a right, she is the executor of that legal act. If it's a killing, same answer. She is the executor. Will abortion disappear if no doctor ever performs the procedure again? Of course not. In the early 1990s, a group of women in Dallas, Texas, concerned over the presidency of fellow Texan George Bush, gathered in a set of clandestine meetings. The topic? How to perform an abortion, legally or illegally, if necessary. The group did not include any doctors or nurses, at least not according to published accounts in the newspaper. Yet the women did possess both the information and the initiative to learn enough to teach themselves. Confidentially to reporters, they said they wanted to be ready in case of an emergency. What if abortions were banned? What if doctors, frightened by terrorist tactics, simply refused to help a desperate woman, or even a dying woman? What if the patient was a daughter of a group member? What if it was a group member herself? The questions these women answered, by forming a group to provide emergency abortions where needed, regardless of the risk, 
should tell pro-life groups all they need to know about whether it's even possible to eliminate the supply of abortion. Unfortunately, the drive to ban abortion constitutionally has less to do with eliminating the procedure than it does with making it, quote, officially wrong, unquote. Agreement 5 will explore this paradox further, but this particular pro-life rationalization reveals a stunning admission. Many in the pro-life movement seem to acknowledge the impossibility of completely cutting the abortion supply. To those who don't share this doubt, let me remind you of the question I asked the pro-choice proponents to consider. Isn't a pregnant woman who commits a pregnancy terminating suicide aborting her child at the same time she terminates her own life? Does this mean we are powerless to effectively deal with abortion? No. It simply means that the answer won't be as tidy as a ban. The solution won't be as self-righteously satisfying as calling a bad thing bad and making it go away. Abortion may be a classic example of morality's supply versus demand. A bad thing can be legal, and if no one ever does it, we are not morally harmed by its legality. Banning abortion is pointless, because the ban itself will not eliminate the supply. Whether it reduces supply is an argument fraught with more problems than it can solve. It champions the cause of making certain that the immorality of poor women killing their children will be prevented, while actually ensuring the immorality of those with a passport and cash flow, or with resourceful friends in Dallas. Pro-life groups have done almost as much as pro-choice groups to address the demand for abortion. What? Both, in other words. Both are mired so deeply in supply-related issues that no significant steps have been taken to bridge what should be a strong agreement. You can only prevent abortion by eliminating the demand, meaning the tragic circumstances that cause women to seek this choice. Efforts to reduce the supply of abortion or efforts to protect and defend the suppliers of abortion services do not accomplish anything. Agreement 5 the immorality of abortion will not be reduced by making the practice stringently illegal. As I have just mentioned, many in the pro-life movement do not naively believe that banning abortion will make it disappear. They still pursue this course, though, out of a desire to protect the woman from eternal damnation, I suppose, among other things. I call this the Christian argument against abortion. I do not imply that any other anti-abortion arguments are any less Christian, nor do I give this position any special status. On the contrary, I use the term Christian here because this pro-life position represents a fundamental misunderstanding of Christianity. First, let me apologize to anyone in the pro-life movement who is not a Christian. Although I'm ignoring you, I don't deny your existence. Granted, this area of agreement may not apply to agnostic pro-lifers, atheist pro-lifers, Jewish pro-lifers, or Muslim pro-lifers. To those of you who meet this description and any other dissenters I have left out, feel free to disregard what I'm about to say. Second, most of us correctly presume the overwhelming majority of pro-life supporters to remain on the hook, so to speak. That is because we associate pro-life politics with Christianity, and we do so because the pro-life movement wants us to do so. For that reason, I don't feel guilty about stereotyping pro-lifers into a Christian mold, at least not the way I'd feel guilty about 
you know, stereotyping Christians into a pro-life mold. That said, Agreement 5 should not surprise, but probably will absolutely stun most pro-life Christians. The immorality of abortion will not be reduced by making the practice stringently illegal. Will prohibiting abortion save the souls of women who otherwise would kill their unborn children? I've already given my answer away. That said, I would not presume to persuade Christians to agree with such a statement because I said so. No. If you want to persuade Christians, you need to cite Jesus Christ. Mind you, even the words of Jesus may not suffice. I'm aware of this paradox going in. In 1988, I heard a representative of Operation Rescue, a pro-life group, unwittingly deny the deity of God's Son in an effort to justify abortion clinic bombings and other potentially deadly acts of violence. That said, I still believe you have to tell Christians what Jesus has said and then have a little faith that most will listen. Here's the question. Let's say that Agreement 4 is short-sighted, and it is possible to effectively ban all abortions by curtailing supply. Somehow, women can be completely controlled, unable to seek illegal abortions, unable to travel internationally, and somehow unable even to jump in front of a fast-moving train. If we can make it impossible for a woman to carry out this sinful act, have we then saved both her soul and the unborn child? Jesus said, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth shall pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the men of old, You shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I tell you that every one of you who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering a gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Make friends quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin... Cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. His message is clear. God will judge us by what is in our heart, not the sum of our actions. If you are a fundamentalist Christian, or even merely a conservative Christian who believes in biblical inerrancy, then I need not quote Jesus further. The Bible is incapable of error. Jesus is incapable of error. Matthew's gospel is trenchant. However, if you are a pro-life Christian who is not convinced that Jesus and the Bible are incapable of error, 
The passage, called the Sermon on the Mount, begins with Matthew 5 and runs through chapter 7. Jesus restates his theme unambiguously, adding example after example about swearing, settlement of debts, and even spoken prayer in the public educational centers of Hebrew society. What does it mean to say that God will judge us by what is in our hearts? Well, if a woman wants to kill her unborn child, and the only thing stopping her is a stringently effective prohibition against abortion, then she will burn in hell. Wanting to kill her baby is the sin. Whether she acts on the desire is a matter that, you know, concerns only the salvation of the unborn child in an earthly sense. Although the woman may act in the correct manner, from a pro-life perspective, she has not been saved. Ironically, the only way to bring salvation to the woman is to change her desire for an abortion. And if you do that, she would not kill her unborn child whether it is legal or not. If it sounds like agreements 4 and 5 are identical, that is reasonable. Nevertheless, there is a key difference. Despite agreement 4, there may have been many devout pro-life Christians who believe God's will can be accomplished by cutting both the supply and demand for abortion at the same time. Agreement 5 makes it clear that this approach will actually circumvent the salvation of any woman who avoids abortion due to supply problems, but nevertheless still feels a strong desire to demand the procedure if it were possible. Many pro-life advocates are as short-sightedly focused on the child as pro-choice advocates are toward the woman. For that reason, I wouldn't be surprised if a contingency in the pro-life camp would find Agreement 5 inconsequential, for them saving the child is God's will and to hell with the woman. As a Christian, I would ask you to read again the words of Jesus. Did Christ hammer this theme because he wants us to be indifferent to the fate of the sinner? No. He wants us to look into our own hearts, but also to teach others. Teach what? We'll teach that refraining from killing is not enough. We must also refrain from wanting to kill. In other words, the immorality of abortion will not be reduced by making the practice stringently illegal. Amen. Agreement 6. America could not provide adoptive homes for more than a million children per year over limitless successive years. As a nation, we are of at least two minds about adoption. From a pro-choice perspective, adoption is one of the predominant other choices, and that makes it crucial. On the other hand, adoption often puts the same pro-choice proponents in a defensive posture because their political opponents clearly want to replace the bad choice of abortion with the good choice of adoption. Pro-life groups are no more comfortable with adoption, though, while heralding the practice as the primary solution to the problems leading women in dire circumstances to consider an abortion, conservatives view adoption as essential but far from ideal. Pro-life ideology looks toward a world where abortion is not necessary, obviously, but also toward a world where adoption is not necessary either. After all, family values is about keeping families together, not about sending unwanted children off to live with someone who is, hopefully, less neglectful or abusive. I have been aware of these clashing values for some time now. A few years back, I referred to adoption as the lesser of two evils in response to the paradox adoption presents on both sides of the political spectrum. This article may be covered at a future time.
As you might imagine, my approach made many people unhappy, both pro-life and pro-choice. Still, I believed then, as I do now, that the contrasting ideals both polar groups hold for adoption do not pose an obstacle to Agreement 6. In fact, the ideals serve to reinforce the agreement. America could not provide adoptive homes to more than a million children per year over limitless successive years. Let's take a few points for granted. 1. More than 1.5 million abortions are performed every year in the United States. 2. Apart from a small number of cases, less than 3%, where the abortion is medically necessary to save the life of a woman or prevent permanent physical harm, abortions are performed on women carrying unwanted children. 3. Arbitrarily grant that perhaps 8 to 10% of the remaining children would die shortly after birth due to viability problems. 4. Finally, a whopping 20% of the remaining pregnant women decide to keep the child and provide a stable home, not an abusive situation that would make us resort to foster care at a later date. What's left? Well, one million children would be born in a world without abortion into orphanhood. This number is not one million children since 1973. Since 1973, the number of additional children left to adoption would probably exceed 30, 40 million. Furthermore, each new year would add one million more children to the adoption process. This translates into a mess that even the most fervent supporters of adoption must fear. In an earlier agreement, I touched upon the false assumptions made by opponents of zero population growth. To restate, we don't have a world population problem because we have plenty of resources to satisfy all people's needs. People are starving only because of inadequate distribution. Fix distribution problems, and all of our problems will be solved. Therefore, population growth does not need to be arrested. My response, if we cannot feed 6 billion people for any reason, be it lack of food or unwillingness to share or inefficient means of transportation, then we must consider calling for a stop to population growth. Let's find a way to distribute our bountiful resources to 6 billion people, many of whom are starving, before we try to spread our effort to 10 billion people. A similar problem exists with adoption. The pro-adoption movement, which I distinguish in this manner because it is not exclusively pro-life or pro-choice, is outspoken about the number of desperate adoptive homes waiting for children. Beyond any consideration of whether there are 30 million homes or 40 million homes or 50 million adoptive homes or 100 million, 100 million homes, by the way, is roughly the entire current U.S. population, we have to answer a nagging question. That being, if all these parents are waiting for unwanted children to adopt, then why are there orphans living in America today? I mean, if we have more people wanting to adopt than there are children to provide, then how can there possibly be a child awaiting an adoption? We all know the answer. We know it even though we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it because it's an embarrassment. What is this dirty little secret? Some children are unwanted before birth. And sometimes those children are killed before birth in abortions. Some children, though, are unwanted after birth. 
As a nation, we have not formed a consensus about either of these tragedies of the unwanted. Pro-life groups usually suggest that eliminating abortion will provide more wanted children for the waiting parents to adopt, those parents unwilling or unable to adopt from the current group of unwanteds. The pro-life approach fails to realize that increasing the number of wanted adoptive children will also increase the number of unwanteds. Pro-choice groups lean toward a simple comparison of numbers, saying that X number of orphans are available for X number of awaiting families. This holds no regard for each family's ability to deal with the prospect of adopting a child who is older, perhaps mentally or physically disabled, or even deemed incompatible for reasons as obvious as racism. Ironically, the pro-choice approach to filling adoption needs ultimately would force adoptive parents to accept an unwanted child. While those same groups actively defend a woman's right to kill in order to not accept an unwanted child. I apologize to anyone who, until now, believed adoption to be a neat and tidy matter. Sorry, but it's a mess. Clearly, both pro-life and pro-choice groups do not have the answers. No, they only add to the ideological mess. I don't have any answers here either, except one. It is clear that we are not doing an adequate job at the present time of providing adoptive homes effectively. We all should agree that adding a million new children to the process every year over limitless successive years is not going to help. Before we try to feed a double expanding world population, let's first demonstrate that we can distribute the resources we have to the number of people who desperately need them right now. Don't add to the misery. If you'll pardon me for tarnishing the golden fleece we call adoption, the same principle applies to the status of those children our society still deems unwanted after birth. Agreement 7. After agreeing to pay a clinic several hundred dollars, a woman does not need an extra day of waiting to decide if she is doing the right thing. For anyone keeping score, we are well past the halfway point in these agreements. I know that up to this point, a number of these agreements have been hard to swallow. As obvious as they are, I assume that many on the extremes of pro-life and pro-choice movements remain adamantly unwilling to agree with anything that crosses their ideological line. No problem. A number of people still believe that the earth is flat, too. Hopefully, my tone hasn't been overtly confrontational up until now. Yes, I have asked for pro-lifers to agree that abortion is not murder. Yes, I have hinted to Christians that Jesus Christ couldn't care less what amendments are in or out of our Constitution. Yes, I have not hedged even slightly on the notion that abortion is the killing of an unborn child. No doubt, pro-choicers wince at how directly I assign the responsibility for this killing to the woman, which is, of course, where it belongs. Although I have casually noted that pro-life groups seem to care only about the rights of the child, and pro-choice groups seem to care only about the rights of women, I have yet to push and shove. Until now. Now is the time for me to ask anyone who is struggling to accept these agreements to, so to speak, put your money where your mouth is. T. H. Arthur. You can call me Trey. Most people do. However, if you were going to write me a check, 
My banking goes much more smoothly if I'm identified by name on payments in the same form as my account's signature card. That reads, T.H. Arthur. Why do you need to know this? Well, Agreement 7 states, After agreeing to pay a clinic several hundred dollars, a woman does not need an extra day of waiting to decide if she is doing the right thing. Some of you may believe you disagree with this agreement. The pro-life movement in particular has a strong connection to waiting periods, both honestly and dishonestly. Mostly, waiting periods are designed to create another hurdle in the abortion process, to increase the cost by increasing the time involved, and to effectively ban abortion procedurally. It's a dishonest tactic. Rather than calling for and abiding by a vote to make all abortions illegal, the waiting game takes the power to decide away from a majority that simply cannot join a pro-life consensus. If you do not believe that pro-life support of waiting periods is dishonest, then answer this. Would pro-life groups support legislation to enforce a 10-month-long waiting period for all pregnant women if it had a chance of truly becoming law? Well, the answer is obvious. Certainly pro-lifers would jump on that bandwagon. That kind of waiting period would have the same effect as an abortion ban. Of course, this point only serves to underscore how dishonest the whole waiting period approach truly is. Americans won't ban abortion, so pro-life lawmakers try to legislate around the lack of national consensus. Ostensibly, a waiting period is not a ban on abortion. It is only a way of assuring that the woman is considered her choice fully. We all agree that abortion is a bad thing, and no one should rush into a decision where the primary choice involves a bad thing. Now, this view of waiting periods as a contemplative, meditative act of reflection is an honest one. Yet, its relative degree of honesty when compared to the use of waiting periods as mini-bans cannot conceal its logical flaw. Waiting periods assume that a woman hasn't already contemplated her situation. I believe that I can prove to you that she has. Here's how. If you believe that a woman needs an extra day of waiting after scheduling an abortion to decide if she is doing the right thing, then pull out your pen and write me a personal check for $500. It's that simple. You have the power to change my mind. You can persuade me that women do indeed need this extra day. Just write me a check for $500, knowing that you are throwing the money away in the process. I will cash your check, and I won't give you the money back. My guess is that my voice will not be drowned out by the scratchy sound of pens scribbling on checkbooks. I understand that. You will need time to think this over. Even if you make a more than comfortable living, $500 is a lot of money to give up, especially if you feel like you are being forced to do it. It would feel even worse if you didn't like the points I'm raising, because then you would be spending some serious cash on a bad thing that you may be embarrassed to reveal later to friends or even family. Guess what? You are now experiencing exactly one iota of what a pregnant woman grappling with an abortion decision feels like. Does my $500 analogy apply to all pregnant women? No, it only applies to pregnant women with cash flow that limits their ability to travel internationally. 
a woman wealthy enough to throw $1,000 a year at an abortion clinic without worrying about frugality is a woman who could easily avoid a waiting period just by traveling to Europe, Mexico, or Canada. She could, in fact, take the same trip if the waiting period lasted 10 months, if you know what I mean. For this reason, my $500 analogy only applies to women who cannot afford to waste $500, or whatever an abortion may cost. To get back to my financial offer, I believe the woman who has scraped, saved, or borrowed money for an abortion, after grappling with the moral and social pressures long before she knew the financial costs, has already spent her waiting period in careful contemplation. Should the doctor or clinic be required to tell her all information, both positive and negative, about the procedure? Yes. I am strongly in favor of information. That is why, of course, I could not support President George H.W. Bush's decision to gag order doctors who provide family planning information to patients. Favoring the dissemination of information spreads both ways. Once the woman has looked at all the information, decided to seek an abortion, consulted with her doctor to perform the procedure, and scheduled an appointment, she has fully satisfied any definition of the term contemplation. Again, we are talking about an expense of several hundred dollars. In this case, the waiting period only applies to the woman who cannot afford to ignore frugality. Does anybody really believe that an extra 24 hours of reconsideration is an honest expectation? If so, write me a check. That's $500 to T. H. Arthur. Write the check because you believe that kind of money can be thrown away on a potentially regrettable decision without any serious contemplation. I have just become a wealthy man if stereotypes about the membership strength of the pro-life movement are correct. Accepting this money will forever silence me on one point of agreement over abortion, but millions of dollars in non-contemplative expenditures will have to suffice as compensation. More likely, I'm not going to see a single check, name spelled correctly or not. That said, I'm still asking you to put your money where your mouth is. We concur. After agreeing to pay a clinic several hundred dollars, a woman does not need an extra day of waiting to decide if she is doing the right thing. It's just that simple. Either accept this area of agreement or write me a check for $500 now or shut up if you're not honest enough to do either. Agreement 8. Most Americans do not know the names and telephone numbers of more than 30,000 women, and certainly none can name that many new acquaintances for each calendar year. Thus far, all the agreements I have covered target those with firmly entrenched, perhaps even extreme, ideologies. Agreements 1, 2, and 3 cover the notion that abortion is the killing of an unborn child, granting without comment that abortion stops a beating heart, which is obvious and tautological. At the same time, these agreements point out that abortion is not murder, because those who say it is do not treat it as such. Nor do those who would link abortion to the extinction of the human race really believe that the sky is falling. Agreements 4, 5, 6, and 7 address why abortion cannot, and probably should not, and really will not be banned in this country, including some discussion of how misguided attempts to make abortion illegal will not achieve their moralistic goals. In Agreements 8, 9, and 10, I would like to look toward the center, away from the black and white extremes from both sides, and uh, 
you know, more toward efforts to moderate. The polar groups battling over the high ground in the abortion debate don't moderate as much as the word might imply. Pro-choice groups do go as far as granting that many abortions are bad choices, excluding cases of rape, incest, and threats to the life and health of the woman. Pro-life groups serious about amending the Constitution often join this compromise. Generally, though, pro-life groups hesitate to moderate much beyond providing an exception to preserve the life of a woman or save her from devastating health complications. Pro-choice groups rarely accept such a limited list, and often the specifics of defining health complications bog down any compromise. For example, how devastating is a complication that renders a woman incapable of future childbirth? Despite the fact that common ground is just as elusive in efforts to compromise as it is in the sloganeer's efforts to demonize, clearing up some misinformation should open the door for a few more agreements. Part of the reason pro-life moderates are willing to join in a rape-incest-health compromise with pro-choice moderates is numerical. This field of exceptions, abortions allowed through this deal even in a constitutional ban on the procedure, is usually described as 3% or 2-3% to of all abortions. Clearly, pro-life moderates seeking a compromise would be elated at banning 97% or more of all abortions. They incorrectly believed that the abortion business would completely dry up because of how small this number seems by comparison. Agreement 8, however, irrevocably disputes the claim that this number is small at all. To the contrary, most Americans do not know the names and telephone numbers of more than 30,000 women, and certainly none can name that many new acquaintances for each calendar year. What does that mean? It seems obvious to include in an otherwise challenging list of agreements. Furthermore, what does it have to do with abortion? Say that 1.5 million abortions are performed every year, and say that only 2% of those abortions qualify for exception due to the rape-incest health of the woman. This estimated number will be low. Particularly if you include sterilization among the health-related issues, the number of abortions qualified despite this ban would exceed 3%. To view the numbers conservatively, though, 2% of our annual abortion rate is 30,000. That is 30,000 this year, another 30,000 last year, and the year before that, and the year before that, not to mention next year. Even if you argue that a number of these women are repeat recipients of abortion services, to which I respond, repeatedly impregnated by rape or incest? Remember that 3 plus percent of the same number is more likely to be 50,000. It doesn't really matter whether you choose a target number of 30,000 per year or 50,000 per year or even 20,000. We are talking about an unbelievably large number of women. Is this number comparable to 1.5 million unborn children? No. But does that make the number small or inconsequential? If so, then conduct an experiment for me. I'll give you a couple of hours, and you give me a list of the 30,000 new female acquaintances you have met for the first time this year. Why haven't you started? What's the matter? You're probably thinking, hey, even if I could list the names and telephone numbers of that many women, it would take a lot more than two hours to create such a directory. 
After all, I'd have to record more than four names and numbers per second. Do you know how I would respond to that? You are exactly right, and any insignificant list that you find impossibly large must not be so easily dismissed. While making compromises to save the children, we often find it too easy to subtract the faces from the nameless numbers of desperate pregnant women. As I'll cover a little later, it is reasonable to expect a woman who fears for her life to consider killing as an option to save herself. Multiply that desperation by 30,000, and you begin to see why most of us don't take this effort at compromise very seriously. We cannot hold serious esteem for anyone who claims that he or she can list the names and telephone numbers of more than 30,000 new acquaintances for each passing calendar year. Therefore, the effort to make exceptions for these women only underscores two polarizing facts. One, pro-life groups, if true to their word could never make a deal that would guarantee the killing of that many unborn children. And two, if this many women seek abortions for reasons a large number of pro-lifers would consider acceptable, then abortion is too regrettably necessary for pro-choicers to consider compromising. Agreement 9. If doctors never study or practice the abortion procedure then an emergency abortion to save the life or health of a pregnant woman is less likely to be safe and free from complications. Some extremists in the pro-life movement do not care about the fate of a woman seeking an abortion. She gets what she deserves, I have heard some say, regarding the common sense notion that abortion should be a safe procedure. I'm not expecting this agreement to strike a chord with the to hell with the woman camp. On the other hand, many respected pro-life moderates have repeatedly pledged that abortion should not be denied a woman for whom the procedure was a matter of life and death. President George Bush, for example, repeatedly said that abortion should be safe, legal, and free from complications in cases where it would save a woman's life. That same president, however proposed many steps to remove the study and practice of abortion from all hospitals, clinics, even medical schools. He didn't want doctors answering patient questions about the procedure. He used presidential authority to quash any study involving abortion, including studies about its dangers, I would assume. He even removed a chapter from a guidebook that was sent to all insurance-carrying federal employees because family planning was included in that chapter. I wouldn't bother positing Agreement 9 to a group like Operation Rescue. But George Bush is not a demagogue. So I ask, if doctors never study or practice the abortion procedure, isn't an emergency abortion to save the life or health of a pregnant woman much less likely to be safe and free from complications? To personalize the stakes just a bit, if you are needing an emergency open-heart surgery, would you rather pick a surgeon who has performed the procedure a hundred times? or a surgeon who is reading the instructions and easy-to-follow diagrams at the operating table. Safe and legal can mean a variety of things. At a minimum, though, a medical operation must be taught, studied, and practiced if we are going to presume to use these terms to describe it. Agreement 9 may seem harmless enough because we view it in the context of saving a woman's life. It does beg a question, though. Does abortion exist? 
this agreement presumes that abortion does exist and also that abortion should exist because in 30,000 or so rare instances per year, it may prove necessary. This trite observation, this observation that abortion exists is crucial. What is the goal of the pro-life movement? One clear answer is the goal that abortion no longer exists. In order for the pro-life movement to achieve this goal, that abortion cease to exist, it cannot ultimately compromise on the matter of exceptions to save a woman's life. That's because abortion cannot not exist and yet exist in rare emergency circumstances at the same time. Once again, this potential agreement is undermined by the philosophies of the very group seeking the compromise. One group will not, and should not, abandon the necessity of teaching and studying abortion as a medical procedure. The other group cannot possibly juggle the logical inconsistency of abortion being completely eliminated, and yet available in a single tragic yet unmistakably worthy instance. None of us wants a frightened pregnant woman to die in childbirth. For that reason, we must agree that doctors should study and practice the abortion procedure, else an emergency abortion to save the life or health of a pregnant woman won't be as safe or free from complications as society would expect. Unfortunately, this agreement only makes the debate over the existence of abortion more unsettling. Agreement 10. If a person threatens the life or welfare of a man's wife, most of us would understand the man's decision to kill this assailant, even if we wouldn't take the same action ourselves for moral reasons. Is there such a thing as a centrist view of abortion? Since efforts to compromise from each corner of the issue seem to fail, does any middle ground exist? If you look at how resistant our nation is to embrace political changes on abortion rights, it seems likely that a centrist anchor of some sort is holding on to a status quo. Any pollster could describe this compromise to you. It's a combination between the belief that abortion is the killing of an unborn child and the belief that a woman, however regrettably, has the right to do so. As a society, we never discuss this compromise because of how uncomfortable it is. Pro-choice groups prefer to deny that abortion represents a killing of any kind. Pro-life groups refuse to accept that the killing of a child can ever be acceptable, since it is, well, regrettable. They would say it should be banned. Centrist groups have a hard time reconciling the notion that something can be right, quote-unquote, and undesirable at the same time. I casually mentioned this paradox earlier while insisting that abortion is a bad thing. There are two reasons why we might refrain from banning a bad thing, and abortion is an issue that exemplifies both. One reason I call morality's supply versus demand. A bad thing can be legal, and if no one ever does it, we are not harmed by its legality. In other words, just because a supply for abortion exists doesn't mean anyone will ever demand one. The other reason to refrain from banning a bad thing is more commonly understood. We hear it when people use sentences that end with the phrase, if I have to. For example, I don't want to fight in a war and kill people I don't even know, but I will if I have to. When President George H.W. Bush spoke of saving the life of the mother, he was making an if I have to statement. 
while pro-life groups grapple with their enigma, how to ban abortion completely and still save the life of that woman President Bush was talking about, the rest of us may grant that abortion exists for a variety of, if I have to, reasons. Since pro-choice and pro-life efforts to compromise have overlapped on some of those, if I have to, reasons, uh, reasons like uh, rape, incest, health of the mother, making the claim should be simple enough. I have another question, though. What is a right to life? We have heard this expression so often used that most of us take its meaning, whatever that may be, for granted. Is the right to life a guarantee of earthly immortality? No. If that were the case, God would violate human rights every time a person ascends to heaven. Is the right to life a manifesto against murder? Well, if so, it wouldn't apply to abortion. After all, in this debate, Agreement 1 is clear. Abortion is not murder. Is the right to life the right not to be killed? That may be as close as an honest answer as the pro-life movement could possibly offer. The right not to be killed would not prohibit God from ascending a person into heaven. It would not apply generally to infectious disease or old age, but only to a person killing another person. I hope from the previous inappropriate conversation that some of you have tracked down online the uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson article, A Defense of Abortion. Um, it's worth looking at that from the perspective of it being a footnote about the concept of minimally decent Samaritanism. I would encourage all of you to seek out her article from 1971 because Agreement 10 has as much to do with her work as my work. She challenges the existence of a right not to be killed. If you know much about American rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and property, you may have drawn the same conclusion Thompson reaches in her essay. That being, in some cases, we do have the right to kill. In Agreement 8, I introduced a common-sense legal concept. A woman has the right to kill a person who places her life in jeopardy, particularly if killing the person is the only way to end the threat. Clearly, this is a right to kill. And it takes precedence, in this case, over any definition of a right to life. Does this same principle apply when the killer, so to speak, is someone other than the woman? The easy answer, in the case of a paid agent like a doctor who performs abortions, is to say that a bodyguard may enforce this person's right to kill under these circumstances. Additionally, I prefer an answer that takes the abortion debate inside the home. I call this answer Agreement 10. If a person threatens the life or welfare of a man's wife, most of us would understand this man's decision to kill the assailant, even if we wouldn't take the same action ourselves for moral reasons. If necessary, I apologize for the agony I'm no doubt bringing to political conservatives. You see, Agreement 10 has as much to do with the right to bear arms as the right to abortion. It is an agreement that a man's home is his castle. It resonates strongly with those who support the right to carry concealed weapons. You see, even the most ardent pro-life conservatives would grant a woman the right to kill a mugger on the subway. By threatening her, the mugger forfeited his right to life. This is the same thing we would say about the home intruder. He left his right to life on the front porch when he broke into the home. Having brought political conservatives into the agreement, allow me to deal with politically liberal pro-lifers. 
the liberal argument would hinge on the innocence of the person being killed. Since we are talking about an unborn child, the issue of innocence does play a role. The conservative, man's home is his castle view, is clear. It doesn't matter how otherwise innocent you are if you trespass and arouse fears. Liberals, however, commonly attach stipulations like state of mind to these types of killings. For that reason, I must make a distinction between being innocent and being absent malice. Just because you are incapable of intending to do something wrong, it doesn't mean that you cannot harm someone. And if you harm someone, you cannot be called innocent, whether your actions are malicious or not. Perhaps an example would help. Instead of a crazed psychopathic killer, the intruder in this man's home is a mentally retarded 12-year-old boy who is large for his age, but too mentally underdeveloped to act out of malice. Would we imprison the man for killing this boy, who is, quote, innocent, unquote, from a pro-life perspective? Especially if the man was startled and shot the moment the boy burst into the master bedroom, would we throw him in jail? If your answer is yes, then we had better change every self-defense law in the United States as soon as possible. If your answer is no, then you agree. A man has the right to kill a stranger whom he believes might possibly threaten the life or welfare of the man's wife inside their home. The stranger in this case has no right to life. Or, at least, the stranger's right to life never takes precedence over the homeowner's right to kill. Should the man regret killing the retarded 12-year-old boy once he realizes how innocent the boy was? Yes. Is abortion a bad thing? Yes. Should we arrest the man and imprison him because he regrets exercising his rights? No. No, we shouldn't. You draw the lines, the connection should be clear. To anyone who might suggest that the connection between the husband-slash-homeowner and the pregnant woman is not clear, I again urge you to seek out and read Judith Jarvis Thompson's article, A Defense of Abortion. In this country, we do not constitutionally require one person, against his will, to maintain the life of another person. If I choose to donate my kidney to my brother, I am a hero, and my act is brave and self-sacrificing. If I choose not to donate that same kidney... I cannot be called the murderer of my brother, even if he dies of kidney failure. Again, pro-life groups who are tempted to counter this argument make the mistake of believing that something must be banned because it is bad, or in this case, something must be legally enforced because it is a good thing. I mean, donating a vital organ to save a loved one's life is undeniably a good thing. But where does the law stop in these cases? What does Agreement 10 ultimately tell us about abortion? Well, society grants the right to kill if necessary to expel an unwanted intruder from your home. With abortion, we are not talking about an unwanted person inside your house. We are talking about an unwanted person inside your body. The homeowner in Agreement 10 could have sought another method for eliminating his problem. Although he is not a criminal for killing the intruder, and his bodyguard would not be a criminal for killing the same intruder, the husband might have spared the assailant's life by calling the police, or using pepper spray instead of a gun. That said, a woman has only one option if she chooses to expel an unwanted person from inside her body. That option, abortion, is a bad thing. It kills an unborn child. It dashes the hope of waiting adoptive parents. 
it surely ends a life course the woman herself regrets traveling. That said, we must agree that her decision is a proper exercise of her rights, over and above anyone else's right to life, even if we wouldn't take the same action ourselves for moral reasons. It's history. And from about that time, 3500, 3000 BC, until about the American Revolution, the figures, Alexander, Julius, Caesar, and Tecumseh, Woodrow Wilson, their King Gedderick, William the Conqueror, and his Norman, the events. That that whole year, 1066, which led up to the Battle of Hastings, was a pivotal year. The drama. Another one of these successors, behind the backs of everyone else, steals Alexander's body and takes it back to his little territory in Egypt. The deep questions. What the heck happened? at the end of the Bronze Age. It's Hardcore History. Get Hardcore History at dancarlin.com Are we all in agreement? I do not believe that a consensus was a reasonable expectation. In an issue that once led an ordained minister working for Operation Rescue to deny the deity of Jesus Christ, I won't be shocked if many on the extreme sides of the abortion issue will find some way to disagree or at least deny these obvious areas of agreement. Why bother then? Well, I'm, I'm seeking honesty. Unless we honestly assess our beliefs, we will never be able to reconcile them. Will acknowledging these areas of agreement solve anything? Perhaps not. We still have a long way to go. That said, until we acknowledge that we must address the demand for abortion rather than the supply... For example, we will never even start the debate on how to curtail the demand. That's right. We are too busy fighting over the issue to even begin addressing it. As a nation, Americans have at least 45 years invested in public debate over abortion. If we begin to find small areas of agreement and eventually build these agreements into a consensus, we may find an acceptable solution to our conflicting opinions. If and when we reach that goal, what will we think of the abortion debate that has raged up until now? What will we think about a list such as this? I have a few answers. Looking back from the future, we will look at a list of agreements such as this with bewilderment. We will wonder why anyone ever thought it was necessary to persuade others about ten simple notions that should have been taken for granted. We will look back on the history of the pro-choice movement and marvel at how many outrageous restrictions on the right of privacy will then be viewed as perfectly acceptable costs of living in a society. Furthermore, we will marvel at how easily those compromises were made once an atmosphere of trust replaced an angry storm of accusations and bomb threats. We will look back at the pro-life movement with a mixture of nostalgia and embarrassment. Like a 1960s campus sit-in, much of the early pro-life history will be seen as comically ineffective, yet unquestionably earnest. The nostalgia will not have a sweet aftertaste, though. For decades, anti-abortion techniques have centered on battle cries like, Abortion is murder, and God is pro-life. These slogans, and the campaigns behind them, have been aggressively applied. The result? Abortions have been held down to 1.5 million per year as if that's the best we can do. I sympathize with anyone in the pro-life movement who finds some of these ten agreements hard to swallow. The middle agreements in particular imply that pro-life forces abandon the ban and seek other avenues, 
like granting that abortion will exist while seeking ways to limit the number of women who feel stuck with such an undesirable alternative. Let's say that a different approach does work, and works sooner than anyone might have expected, say, 30 years. How many unborn children will have needlessly died from unwanted pregnancies that could have been prevented if pro-life groups and pro-choice groups had sought some honest areas of agreement decades earlier, rather than using demonizing rhetoric like murderer and zealot? Who will be responsible for the needless deaths of those unborn children during the war years of the abortion debate? The doctor? The mother? The baby's father? The president? Legislature? Or courts? Perhaps they all can share the blame. If we cannot come to an honest agreement about some of the solution-blocking issues that surround abortion, all those people can share the blame with you and me. It will be our fault, too. Music by Kevin McLeod.